All right, so remember where we are in the story. <clears throat> so Jesus, this, this parable is not being told in a vacuum. Uh, Jesus is, is, you recall, the day before had uh, gone into Jerusalem, and as he did, the crowds were gathered around him chanting, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then Jesus had gone back to Bethany, come back to Jerusalem, and when he walked into the temple, he flipped the tables. He was angry that they had turned God's house, and specifically the part of God's house that had been set aside for the nations, into a place of commerce. It had cows and goats and chickens, oh my, roaming around. And he clears that out, and so... That group of men, the text describes as um, the chief priest, the scribes, and the elders came to him and said, who do you think you are? Now, the text tells us in chapter 20 that Jesus is teaching the people. So one day as Jesus was teaching the people, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders came up. So here's what's going on. Jesus is standing in front of a large crowd of people. This group of highfalutin people, the chief priests would have been political appointees, super important people. The scribes would have been the religious elite who they did judgments for a living. That was their job. They knew the Bible from end to end. So you had the chief priests, the scribes, and then you had the elders, all the muckety-mucks from the community. A big group of important people, people that the people Jesus is teaching knew were their authorities. It's like the mayor, the city council, the preachers, and uh, I don't know who the chief priest equivalent would be. Um, uh, just real important people come up. Jesus is teaching them. He turns, and they say, by whose authority do you do these things? Jesus, remember, asked them, well, let me ask you a question. Did John the Baptist come? Was he of God or would not? And they, being a bunch of wimps, huddle up. What do you think we should say? I don't know. What do you think we should say? And so they, they don't have the guts to answer him, so they say, well, uh, we don't know. And Jesus is like, really? You can't answer that? Okay, if you can't answer that question, then I'm not going to answer your question. All this crowd who he was teaching just saw this interaction. Jesus turns back to the crowd. All the wussy leaders wander off. Jesus turns back to the crowd, and we have this parable. So this is what's going on. They just saw this interaction with Jesus and the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. So now he turns back to teach. And it says, he began to tell the people this parable. So it was right on top of it, literally. So Jesus is teaching. Hey, hey, who do you who think you are doing this? Well, let me ask you this, and then immediately he goes, it's like they are still wandering off. It's still kind of like, oh my gosh, he just stood up to all those people. It's still on everybody's mind, and then Jesus goes, all right, let me tell you a parable. Let me tell you a story. And so he kicks off into this story. A man planted a vineyard and led it out to tenants and went to another country for a long while. Now, we may read that and go, when does that happen? But if you think about it, it's really not, I mean, that sort of thing does happen in our time. In fact, I know a guy in South Alabama who he lives and works 
on, there's a doctor in Birmingham that owns like 1,800 acres in South Alabama. This man lives in the house that the doctor owns, and his job is to go plant the green fields and make sure that the fences are kept up. I mean, it's the, it is the most perfect job ever. Make sure that the, the deer are running the way they're supposed to, uh, maybe feeding them some ye- yellow acorns every now and then, just making sure everything, just so so that when Dr. Schmuckatelli comes down from Birmingham, he can take his rifle and walk out in the woods and act like he's a hunter, right? So his job, it's not his property, it's not his house, it's not his four-wheeler, it's not his, he's doing it, and the reason he's doing it isn't for himself, but so Dr. Muckety Muck, when he comes down, can can play in the woods, just like that. These guys, a rich man comes, he buys a vineyard. He's a rich man. He's not going to play with grapes. And so he hires some people. They live in the vineyard. Their job is to take care of the vineyard so that when the rich guy comes back, he can make some money off the vineyard, making Welch's grape juice, because we know they didn't have wine, right? And so here we've got this going on. So when, after a few years pass, the people have been taking care of the vineyard. The rich man sends one of his representatives to go, hey, go check on my vineyard, and let's see if we start making any money yet. Well, these silly, stupid little vineyard owners go, well, we want to keep all these grapes. He hadn't been working any. He hadn't been out here hoeing. I mean, I've said it before, nobody likes to drive a hoe. I mean, a lot of people say, you know, I like to garden. It's fun. It's relaxing. Nobody on this God's green earth likes to walk out with a hoe and spend a few hours doing that. If you do, I need to talk to you because there's some other problems going on. We need to check and see whether or not you should be driving. And so he ain't been doing that. He hadn't been pruning these grapes. If you've ever worked around grapes, they're hard work. In the fall, you got to cut them back, but you got to keep enough growth so that they can put on new growth because the grapes grow on the new growth, and you got to cut them back, and you got to fertilize them, and you got to till around them, and you got, you got, and so they're saying, oh, muckety muck down there hadn't done any of this, so who does he think he is to come get the grapes? And so their solution is to take the servant who he sent out, whoop him, and send him on his way. And you tell him, blah, blah, blah. So the guy who owns it is going, what in the world is this about? Maybe maybe my servant was a jerk. Maybe he showed up and he was bossing everybody around. Maybe he was a, a wimp and he didn't stand. I don't know. So I'm going to send somebody else. So he sends a different servant. It's his land. He owns the crops. He owns the houses that the people are living in. He owns the vineyards. He's just as confused as, as, why are they acting like this? He sends the second servant. Second servant shows up and says, hey, clearly there was a misunderstanding with the last guy. And they whoop him and send him on his way. And then they, the, the, the owner sends a third saying, what in the world? And they do the same thing the third time. So the owner says, all right, all right I'm tired of this. I'm going to send my son. They'll know that it's my son. And then they'll, they'll figure out who's in charge here. So the son shows up, and the, the people who are tending the vineyard say, hey, well, the son's going to inherit the vineyard, so if we kill him, then we get to keep it. And so they take the son out, they treat him terribly, and they kill him. Now, the people listening to this parable knew exactly what Jesus was talking about. They had just seen the interaction with the leadership 
that these people that he's teaching had allowed to be over them. He, they had just seen what had happened, and they knew good and well what, what he was talking about, that the vineyard was Israel, that all those servants who had came time after time were all the prophets who God had sent to warn. What do you think you're doing? God had told them. We've, we've talked about it a thousand times. I set before you a blessing and a curse. And as they would go off track, God would send his servants to say, hey, hey, what do you think you're doing? You're sacrificing to Baal. You're running after Ashtoreth. You need to stop that. And they would treat that servant terribly. And so the father finally, in his love and in his compassion, sends his son. They knew what he was saying. Because how I know that they knew what he was saying, when Jesus said, what will the owner of the vineyard then do? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. And when they heard this, they said, surely not. They knew what he was saying. They knew that he was saying, I'm the son. They're throwing me out. So the owner of the vineyard's going to come and remind them whose name's on the deed. And if he wants to take the vineyard away from those tenants and give it to somebody else, he can and he is. And they heard it and said, surely not. No way. God is not going to cast Israel aside. That can't be what he's saying. So they knew what he was saying. And then Jesus, when they said, no way, surely not, he quotes to them from Psalm 118 and says, and I love that it's, the text says, he looked directly at them. Did you ever have a teacher that when everybody was cutting up would look directly at you? Hey, I'm done playing. He looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builder rejected has become the cornerstone. Every one who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. So they knew what he was talking about, and he quotes from Psalm 118. In Psalm 118, it says, Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Wait, we've heard this just a little bit before, right? Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray. Give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We will bless you from the house of the Lord. Now, in Jesus' day... You realize that in the Bible that you hold, the chapter and verse breaks, the, you know, turning your Bibles to Romans 13, 5, that those weren't in the Bible. That if I wanted to reference a Bible text, I couldn't say, Jesus couldn't say, turning your Bibles to Psalm 118, because it wouldn't have been Psalm 118, it would have just been that other Psalm. And so one of the ways that Jesus could reference things is to quote the first verses in that particular section. You know he did this because when he was on the cross, he said, 
being interpreted, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, which is the first line of Psalm 22. Jesus was saying, think about that text. And here, Jesus is making a point, and he's drawing their mind to this text, which they would already have been thinking about. Everybody knew that that was a text predicting the coming of the Messiah. They all stood on the streets proclaiming Jesus as Messiah as they quoted this same text. Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You read the same thing in Psalm 118 in the same text. And Jesus is backing up from that and saying, hey, that is a blessing and a curse. Because if you reject the stone, you get crushed by it. The stone is just a stone. What you choose to do with it is up to you. But God has a plan and he's working the plan. And so the story ends there. Now, it would be easy for us to say, all right, well, that's a cool story. But what has that got to do with me today? I mean, clearly, for those first century Jews who were rejecting their Messiah, that was a lot of information that they needed at that time. But they rejected their Messiah. Jesus prophesied that the stone would crush them, that the, the vineyard would be taken away from them and given to others was fulfilled in 70 A.D. when Titus marched through and completely destroyed Jerusalem, which we've already talked about. So how does this apply to me today? How does my life change in the light of this text? So I want to just make a couple of observations. The first one should be pretty obvious. Jesus is the Messiah and as the Messiah, he knew he would die. The son is killed in his parable. Jesus did not have any doubt that he was going to die. Now that, that has implications for us because sometimes we forget that Jesus came knowing that he was going to die and that he was going to die for you. Remember as we preached through uh, the la in the last series, I kept saying, I want you to not think God loves the world. I want you to think God loves me. I mean, if you really think about it, if you just stop for a minute and think about what it took for there to be a you, it's pretty amazing that your parents met, and then their parents met and got married, and their parents met and got married, and, and back, 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 all the way to Adam and Eve that God put those couplings together and those, those combination of personality traits. Isn't it weird as parents how our kids seem to take on some of our personality traits? Isn't it weird how the most annoying of your kids, I guarantee you're the ones that are just like you. I know it because it's the case with me. That when one of my kids, just the other day, I, we were laughing because we were in the car and one of my kids made a statement about something and the other one said, uh-uh, and they end up arguing for like 20 minutes about something that neither of them knew what they were talking about. And I'm like, well, y'all both shut up kind of thing. And I was telling Ann about it, like, can you believe I had to deal with this? And she goes, yeah, I don't know where they got that. <laughs> I'm like, hey, nobody asked for your opinion, woman. But the things about your kids are the things that are just like you, and you took on this trait and this trait, and then your grandparents did this trait. And have you ever looked at a picture of like an old relative that you don't even know who they are? It's some sepia tone picture, and you're like, oh my gosh, that person looks like me. When in reality, you look like them, right? 
or that thing about yourself that you don't like, you see it reflected in your parents' eyes or something. So think of the miracle that made you, that God could have made us all the same, but God loves that diversity where people are come together and, and the person that comes out of that is a little bit of this and a little bit of that and a little bit of this grandparent and a little bit of this, and, so that you're who you are. God wanted you to be exactly who you are. And that God, when he sent his son, sent his son to die for you. He made you who you are with all the attributes that you have, all the weaknesses that you have, all the strengths that you have. You're who you are, and God sent his son to die for you. And he knew he was going to die from the moment he got here, and he did it anyway. Whenever we come across that truth in text, that should blow our minds. So the first observation I have is that he knew he would die. He knew why he came, and he did it anyway. The other observation that I have that is extremely applicable in the times that we live in is this. That even when it looks like everything is falling apart, God knows what he's doing. If you look at Jesus' lineage, you can see that. If you look at human history, you can see the history of the nation of Israel from Abraham all the way forward in the story that we have. God is working through foreign armies, through pestilence, through to do exactly what he planned. God was never surprised, never shocked, never wringing his hands going, oh my gosh, what are we going to do now? It was all a part of his plan. Now, as I watch the news or listen to the news or read the news or, Lord forbid, look on Facebook and get news or Instagrams, I keep hearing this term thrown out over and over. We are in an unprecedented crisis. There is absolutely nothing unprecedented about what we're going through right now. In fact, I would argue if you look at the last 4,000 years or so that we have history recorded, disease, war, and conflict and pestilence is the norm. That happens all the time. I w- we were talking on Wednesday night. Now, in my lifetime, things, you know, being born in, I was born in 1970, uh, things have kind of trucked along. And yeah, for me, for me in my lifetime, this is fairly unprecedented. But it, you don't have to go back far. I can look at my grandmother's life. She was born in 1900. When she was born, her lifestyle was more like Jesus' lifestyle than it was mine. And where she went, she went on a buggy and a wagon. She got up every morning and she worked in a field to make sure that they had food to eat. They gardened and canned to make sure that they could eat. They raised animals not as pets. The idea of having a pig in your house would have blown her mind. That was bacon. Are you crazy? I've heard the story that my sister was doing a report for school and and, uh, she was talking with my grandmother about different rooms in the house. And she said, well, what kind of closets did you have? She said, we didn't have any closets. And Pam said, well, where did you put your clothes? And my grandmother just laughed. 
on our backs. We didn't have extra clothes, as she would say. I was telling somebody today, to my shame, I, I remember I was older. I'd come, was back from some, doing something in the Marine Corps, and I, I, she asked me to take her to the grocery store. And we went to the grocery store, and then this would have been like 92 or 93. And she put on her, you know, every old woman had a house dress, and then she had an apron she wore over that house dress every day. And, but if you were going to town, you put on a different dress, and you had a fancy apron you put on. And you put on gloves, and she put on this big bonnet. And we went to Food World or someplace. And I remember, again, to my shame, I remember walking around Food World being terribly embarrassed because this old woman is shuffling around with her gloves and bonnet on. And then we went up to pay. And her bill came to, you know, $43.76. And she had a little tobacco sack that she kept her money rolled up in that she pinned into her bra. And so we're here at the cash register, and she's digging around in her bra to get that, <laughs> that tobacco sack out to pay the, pay the people. Now think about that old woman's lifetime. She saw, she was, grew up in Coleman County. She saw over half the county die from the Spanish flu. And Coleman County is one of the few places in Alabama that has a mass grave. And it says on the mass grave, here lie the dead from the 1918 epidemic. Now, can you imagine how bad it must be that your husband, wife, child is not put in a grave by themselves, but is thrown into a huge hole with everybody else? That was a part of her life. She went from that to World War I, where she sent family members off to. Then, after that, there was the Depression, where I've heard her tell stories about her mama telling everybody she wasn't eating supper because she wasn't hungry and then catching her eating cornbread out of the chicken feed because they didn't have enough food to feed those kids. And she went from that to World War II, where she sent her sons off, to some of them not to come back. And then after World War II, she sent those sons that didn't go to World War II, she sent to Korea. And then we turned around twice and went to Vietnam. For her life, pestilence, battles, warfare, everything being in turmoil, people not having enough food, people not having enough money to buy food. When we moved her out of her house in Dolomite, I know my mom's chuckling when she says we because I wasn't anywhere around. When they moved her, she had number, 12, number 10 cans of food hid all in that house because she had said, I'm never going to go hungry again. So she had hid food all over that house. That sort of thing was normal to her. Throughout human history, pestilence, disease, issues is normal. And you know what? God's been faithful through all of it. God doesn't need our help. He doesn't need us to be stupid and go French kiss everybody with COVID, but he doesn't need us to help him along. He's going to do what he's going to do. In this situation, the very fact that Jesus is standing there came down to a needle-thin point. Sennacherib, who was conquering the world, overthrew Israel, had taken 10 of the 12 tribes off. Nobody believed that that could happen. These are God's chosen people. It's 3,000 years later, we still don't know where those 10 tribes are. And then he takes his army of hundreds of thousands and parks them outside of Jerusalem and says, either surrender or I'm coming in. We read the story in 2 Kings. 
Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria. On what do you rest this trust of yours? Do you think that mere words and strategy and power for war? And whom do you trust? He called out with a loud voice in the language of Judah, Hear the word of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, Do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you out of my hand. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord, saying, The Lord will surely deliver us, and the city will not be given into the hand of the Assyrian. Has any of the gods of the other nations delivered us out of his hand? Or out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Who among all the gods of the land have delivered their lands out of my hand? Here, the king of Assyria stood outside of the gates and said, Don't be a fool to trust in your God. I've marched where I've wanted to, and everybody else has claimed that their God would protect them. Where's their gods now? Those inside of the gates could look out and see a sea of humanity. God's chosen line had narrowed down. It's just Hezekiah. We know the story. Hezekiah took this letter that I just read from into the temple and laid it on the temple. He said, oh, God, please stand up for your people. The story continues a few chapters later. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into this city or shoot an arrow there or come before it with a shield or cast up a siege mount against it. By the way that he came, for the same he shall return, and he shall not come into this city, declares the Lord. For I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. And that night, an angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camps of the Assyrians. And when the people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. And then Sennacherib, king of the Assyrians, departed and went home and lived in Nineveh. Now, what I don't want you to hear me saying is you can do whatever you want to, want to do and God's going to protect you. Because here in this situation, what God was protecting was his honor and he was going to do what he said he was going to do. And he told David, from your line, a king is coming. And that line led all the way to that little king who walked in and laid out the letter from Sennacherib. What I can tell you is is that God's made some promises to you. God has said, be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that will he reap. That can be a scary thing. Or that can be the most beautiful promise written in the Bible. It's all based on what you're sowing. If you take watermelon seeds and put them in the ground, what are you going to get? If you spend your whole life and you're sowing discord, and you're running your mouth and gossiping, and you're doing whatever you want to do, even if you come to church on Sunday, you're going to reap what you sowed. But at the same time, if you're serving your king and nobody sees it, in fact, we're commanded to not even let our right hand know what our left hand's doing when we're serving him. We're not supposed to brag because we're not looking for praise of people. When we serve our king, he sees it. And you will reap what you sow. And it can come up a bountiful harvest. 
as you spend time with your children and you pour into them and you love on them, that can reap unbelievable harvest. If you're focused on you, you're going to reap what you sow. Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the gospel. Make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That no matter what you do or where you go on God's green earth, if you're about building his kingdom as you do it, you've got somebody standing with you all the time. God never promised you that you would never go through the valley, but he said, when you're in the valley, I'm with you. That's a promise. If you get COVID, you've got the king right beside you, and nothing's going to happen to you outside of his will. So please, from this I see, we don't have to go through life in fear. Again, I'm not saying don't be stupid. I lock the doors of my house at night for a reason. But what I am saying is, is that we don't have to act out of fear. We don't have to be afraid that something's going to get us. Because somebody's already got you. And he is stronger than any enemy that can come against you. And he does not sleep and he does not slumber. And even if we do die, we've said this over and over again. When you take your last breath, your next step is written out in text. And to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord, this life is not mine anyway. It's a gift that God's given me to serve him. And so if I'm about serving him, then I'm free. Doesn't mean that my plans are going to work out the way I want them to. In fact, my experience in life has been this. Never do my plans work out the way I want to. I just need to expect that up front. But they always work out the way he wants them to. And oftentimes, it's way better than anything I could have thought about. When I walked out of Turkey, I had no idea that God was opening the pastorate back up to me. And I remember pleading with God, please open a door where we can go to Indonesia. Please, God, open a door where we could go to France. Please, God, open a door where we could go to Germany, where we can serve you. And all the while, God said, no, I'm not doing any of that, you idiot. I've got something better for you. I'm going to put you where you can serve me the way I want you to. And so in all of the uncertainty, all of the political, up, as we watch the convention, I don't know if you're watching the conventions or not. Um, maybe you want to be happy and you're not watching them. But as we, we, we see everything just in churning around, please, from the light of this story, recognize that God knows what he's doing. No matter who wins the election, no matter who wins the election on Tuesday in, uh, at our city election, you know what? We know it's the person that God know, wants to win it. And so we, we do the things that we have to do here on this earth, and then we rest in Him. Father God, Lord, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that You... Let us see that you are in control. God, help us always to remember that you are God and we are not. 
God, I pray that you help us to rest in you. Lord, we, we tend to go in one of two directions. There are some in this room who their heart trends and moves toward worry. God, I pray for those, Lord, that you would be gentle. God, that you would remind them that you own the cattle on a thousand hills. God, I pray that you would help them to rest in you, that the words of your word would echo in their hearts. And then there's those of us who trend toward control, and we want to run around and do everything. And those, God, I pray that you would be the hammer, and you would remind us that oftentimes the best thing we can do is shut our mouths and rest in you. God, I pray that as we open this altar, that your people who are called by your name would humble themselves and pray and call out to you so that you could heal our land. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.